the biggest challenge of breaking into this business is not being overwhelmed. If you can get overwhelmed by internal and external factors, externally, it's a hard industry to break into. You have to move around. You have to be willing to not make much money. You have to be willing to sacrifice all the things that, you know, as a 20-year-old, are hard to sacrifice. Weddings, vacations, happy hours with your friends, all, all that stuff, relationships. And then internally, you struggle. I mean, certainly I did with the imposter syndrome, which is basically, you know, kind of a fancy way of saying that I experienced a ton of self-doubt. And I used to read these. I remember I used to read these, like, sports trivia books and study the rules of sports that I didn't know very well. I was terrified that I would be exposed for not knowing as much as I thought I should. And a lot of young women in this business I've met with struggle with that confidence level and believing in yourself and and that internal stuff is sometimes a bigger roadblock than any of the external stuff so that's a a long-winded way of saying that that nerves are real and nerves are good and you just as Tara said fake till you make it um if you fake confidence soon enough you'll you'll actually start to believe in it I feel I someone once told me a long long time ago when I was playing that if you don't feel a little nervous, if you don't feel a little scared, that means you're not ready. So so having those feelings means that you're ready. And I think more than anything, you know, that, that keeps you with the top of your game. It keeps you on edge. It keeps you ready to perform or to compete. You watched them. You cheered for them. Maybe you booed them. You listened to them. You were impressed by them. Today, they share their favorite memories with you. It's the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's your host, Mike Yam. All right, something a little bit different here on the podcast. We are we're going to mix it up. Normally, like the technology has me pigeonholed to getting just one guest. So I think we've tweaked some things in the system and it's the first time I have two people on the line. And I'm not going to lie, there were some issues, at least on my end, but we, we have it all settled out. Um, it's just, it's a different take because we've had broadcasters come on the show before, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to get two people who I've I've met and I've worked with in, in different realms who have similar roles, but different roles and vastly different paths talk about sort of the uh, the way they got into the business and some of the challenges that they face. Uh, one of those people is one of my co-hosts here at the Pac-12 Network. We share an office, um, which I know she doesn't like to do with me. Um, that's Ashley Adamson. And then the other person on the line is Sarah Kustak, who's the sideline reporter and now an analyst uh, for the Yes Network covering the Brooklyn Nets. And Sarah and I actually met. Can I say this? Like we worked for the government, which makes us sound kind of cool. Yes. Maybe. I love it. Sort of. It sounds a lot yeah. better than, than I think what they hired us for, but yeah. go with it. We, go with it. Yeah. We, we, we hosted a robot competition for DARPA, which I thought was – it was actually a great experience. But, guys, thank you so much for uh, for stopping by the podcast. And, and you know, I think it's important because, actually, I made reference to the paths that you guys have. Um, take me sort of through your career pr- progression because I feel like a lot of times when I talk to students, I usually cite your path as the more typical path that – a lot of broadcasters take. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks for having us on, first of all, Yammer. I mean, it only took me staring over your shoulder for six weeks for you to finally <laughs> invite me on your podcast, so I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so I had a, I would say maybe a pretty typical path, although the thing that I always tell young aspiring journalism majors is that there is no right 
or wrong way to do it, that if you ask 200 reporters how they got into the business, they'll give you 200 completely different answers. So um, real briefly, the, the path that I took was I went to Boston College. It was an English major. I took some communications classes there. Had in my mind that I would always love to be in sports broadcasting, but never really knew how I would do that. Um, BC had a good communications school, but not a great broadcast school. So I ended up going back to grad school for broadcast journalism at Boston University. Um, and then just kind of worked my way through the local news circuit. So started in Albany, New York as an associate producer for news. Um, basically there I was working overnight in, yeah, in Albany at a Time Warner cable station, rewriting AP wire news copy for our uh, anchors. So it was a very prestigious position. As you can imagine, I got paid a lot of money to do that. Um, Ready to retire. From there, I sort of realized, <laughs> from there, I sort of realized that I needed, um, I needed to get out because they were always going to kind of look at me as an AP. So I was there for a little over a year and ended up getting a job in Syracuse, New York at the ABC affiliate. From there, went to Indianapolis and worked at the CBS affiliate, covered some really great stuff in Indy. Um, and then ended up at Pac-12 Networks, which, again, I, I'm still convinced that they accidentally hired me. I think Kristen Bredis, our boss, who hired both of us, um, just didn't really have any other choices and, and at the last minute said, all right, we'll, we'll give this lady a try. So I'm thankful that my key card still works because I, I certainly was not ready for this job when I took it. But uh, well, happy to be here with you, Yammer. Yeah, we're, we're having fun. And I can attest because I, I talk to Kristen pretty regularly. That is not the case at all. You were, you were <laughs> definitely someone that she wanted on the team. And I, I think on the sure. flip side for you, Sarah, it's vastly different because you were a college athlete. And Ashley and I, we, we spend so much time around college athletes who want to be in broadcasting, which is why I think it was really important to have you on the show. So take me through your progression. Well, I think Ashley couldn't have said it better that if you asked 200 different broadcasters, they would have a different story. And uh, more than anything, I think this is my least favorite question because I can't quite uh, pinpoint just the jagged road that you take. You talk to so many, you know, whether it's aspiring broadcasters or people that are trying to get in the industry and they talk about, you know, knowing this was always their dream, knowing they always want to get to broadcasting. And for better or worse, that is not my path whatsoever. I was so focused um, throughout college on playing basketball and cared about getting good grades but didn't think much past what I would exactly do. Um, I was in communications, but at a sociology minor, I thought about a, a lot of different paths, whether it's corporate spokesperson or speech writing, things of that nature. And I actually ended up um, starting grad school my senior year while I was playing. I was able to finish my fifth year, and it was uh, in corporate and multicultural communication. So I thought I would stay in some path of speaking and of writing. And um, to try and keep it short, throughout that time when I was in grad school, my fifth year, uh, I had met some folks and I was able to be basically like a production runner for ESPN's noon football games uh, because I was at DePaul, I was in Chicago, it was fairly close to get to a handful of those Big Ten school locations. And the second I saw a game in the production truck and saw what actually happened, being an athlete myself, you know, understanding what happened on the field or on the court, um, watching the way a production was put together, I absolutely fell in love with the business and with the industry. And I thought it was just such an incredible way to, to somewhat manufacture the same type of adrenaline rush, the pressure, the need to perform um, that I felt as an athlete. 
as I continued on my career. So um, from there, it took a million different paths and just grinding, as I'm sure you know, you and Ashley can attest, as, as we all do, trying to find jobs here or there, freelancing, um, getting a lot of, you know, I think more than anything, we know you, you get a test, you get a practice, you get here, we'll, we'll toss you this, see how you do, and see if it turns into something more. Um, but I was very fortunate to be able to kind of put different things together based on the fact that I did play basketball. So it was radio roles, some high school analyst roles, doing high school boys and girls basketball, high school football, um, and that kind of slowly matriculated to doing different things within the Chicago area and for some stations there. Um, eventually, um, I was able to do some work for ESPN's regional uh, networks of doing some sideline analyst work. And then I got my first full-time job with Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago, so covering all the pro teams that I had grown up watching and rooting for. And you definitely get a different take and a different feel um, of what it's like being on the other side of things and being in front of the camera but, but covering these teams. And it was an incredible um, place to just learn both anchor and to host and uh, do the reporting and feature reporting and all that type of things. So... Um, that was such a special time covering so many different sports. And then I took the opportunity uh, with the Brooklyn Nets because the team was moving to Brooklyn. It was getting entirely entrenched in the NBA, which is you know, part of my background of playing uh, basketball and, and an opportunity to move to New York was something that, that I was uh, really excited about. So that's, that's kind of what brought me here, and it's been um, certainly for the Yes Network a, a fantastic experience, getting a chance to work with so many talented people in, in, in a sport and with a league that I love. Well, you guys make reference to a lot of similar I, – I introduced you guys. You guys both do. You have done and continue to do sideline, and yet I know Sarah, you do some analyst work now, and you're going to do more of that. And Ashley, you you've been in the host chair as well, and you've been sort of the the point guard on a lot of our shows here at the Pac-12 Network. Take I want both you guys to talk about this, but Ash, take me through sort of the preparation for you know someone will see sideline and say, oh, okay, like you're you're doing a quick hit, you're 30 seconds here, you're doing that that Q and A, you know, before the half or at the end of the game. There's not, I, I think, for the casual viewer, they don't they don't see this huge, huge impact, and yet all the preparation. I mean, I sit in there in the office with you, and and I know how much work you're doing, and I know Sarah just working with you uh, on that robot competition, the amount of notes that you had. Just what's it like on a day to day basis as you guys prepare for for a broadcast? Yeah, so um, I think that that's a, a great point because even when I first started, you know, you think of I think people look at the sideline role and they see, okay, well how much you're actually on, so how many interviews you have and how many, you know, you have an opening hit and then you jump in throughout with an injury update or whatever the case may be. And I always say that to be a sideline reporter, just to be there is maybe one of the, I don't want to say easier jobs, but but just to do sidelines um, comparatively to some of the other roles, some people might look at it as easy. To be able to do a really significant and have an impact on the sidelines, to feel like at the end of the game, that you really contributed something to the broadcast uh, is really, really, really hard. I would say I've probably done, I don't know, 100 games on sideline just throughout my career in various sports. And there have maybe been five or six that I've walked away from feeling like I really made a difference in the broadcast, which doesn't seem like a very good ratio now that I say it out loud. But (laughs) um, there is something to be said for the preparation that you have to do um, and all of this, the, the notes and all the stuff that you go into, I mean, I just, for, for me, for a sideline game, if it's a team that I've covered before, um, 
you know, obviously a lot of times I'll do for football, I'll do one of our uh, early season non-conference games. So I'll, I'll have a really good feel for Stanford or Cal or Washington State, but they're playing a Portland State or a Sacramento State or a team that I don't know as well. So part of it is your familiarity with the team, but it's just you, it's a deep dive. Um, and there are – you can never over-prepare. I think that, that being over-prepared is the only way that you have the, the confidence to go into a game and know that no matter what happens, that you're going to be able to be ready for it because there's not a worse feeling, and, and I've been there, um, there's not a worse feeling than – starting a live broadcast and not feeling like you are totally 100% uh, prepared. And so I think a lot of that is reading a ton, and a lot of that is just being able to talk to the players and coaches. Um, I had a professor in grad school who used to tell me that reporting is showing up and going to the practices, going to the shoot-arounds, talking to the coaches. Uh, A lot of these people, and and it doesn't need to be the head coach, um, a lot of these people – are willing to give you their time. SIDs can be an amazing source of information and stories. And what you're looking for is the stuff that's not out there, the little nuggets that whatever's interesting to you is going to be interesting to somebody else and figuring out how to weave that into the narrative of the broadcast. So uh, the one thing that, that I always struggle with, at least I did when I first started doing sidelines, is I would walk away and I would look at all of the stuff that I didn't get in and feel like, oh, man, that was such a waste. Like I had all these awesome stories and pieces that I thought and hoped we were going to get in um, and sometimes because of the pace of the game or the way it goes, that doesn't happen. Um, and you have to be okay with that and know that you just are kind of storing that in the in the bank, in the memory bank, and in your notes for the next time you've got a Washington State game. Uh, so, yeah, there is a ton of preparation that goes into it. Um, you know, being in the field is different than being in the host chair, certainly, uh, because you don't have a, a Ryan McGrady research guru there helping you look stuff up um, at every moment. You don't have... You know, you're out in the elements. There's a lot more that can that can go wrong when you're out in the field for a live broadcast. Uh, but that's what makes it fun, in my opinion. Yeah, and just tacking on that, Nashley, you couldn't have said it better. But um, in terms of whether it's sideline reporting or being an analyst or play-by-play, being in those roles, as you talk about a live broadcast and being in the elements – all that research and all that you do, all the preparation, you never know what's going to come up. You never know a situation whether someone does get hurt or whether, you know, they start running a play that that worked a ton in a previous game and, and you talk to a coach about it or a player or whatever that may be. And it's almost like one of those things, you know, for all the work that you do, you may use 10% of it at best, but you don't know what 10% you're going to be using. And, and the really talented people and, and the really, really uh, it, it just those that excel at their job um, have just all this information, all this knowledge and wisdom because they're using the things that are applicable to the game or to the game situation. Um, and, and more than anything, I think that's what when you watch a broadcast, what separates you know, those who are just kind of telling the story of the information they know or telling the story of the game or the live broadcast that you see. And, you know, back to when you're talking to aspiring broadcasters or kids that want to get into it or doing it, it's just that pre-preparation and, and knowing that no matter how short of time I may be on a broadcast or a long time or whatever the show may be, um, having all that knowledge is you never know what you're going to need, but being able to utilize that and pick and pluck from that when it's applicable is some of the coolest and best things if you're a viewer and you're watching you know, a certain broadcast. 
You guys mentioned, you guys are both talking about preparation and, and I think both of you guys have these moments. Like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had Tony Reale on the show and I said to him, you know, you get that chance to host around the horn. You know, how scared are you? Do you feel like you're maybe not ready? He's like, oh man, he's like, I was scared for the first 300 shows. You know, you never really feel like you're truly ready for something like that. You know, Sarah, I'll start with you here. I mean, I think you're in a unique situation where you've actually been an analyst on men's games. I've had an opportunity to talk to Carol Lawson, who does a ton of stuff at ESPN. How challenging is that? Like, do you go in and, and are you actually scared of, of that moment, at least for that first time? I feel I, someone once told me a long, long time ago when I was playing that if you don't feel a little nervous, if you don't feel a little scared, that means you're not ready. So, so having those feelings means that you're ready. And I think more than anything, you know, that, that keeps you with the top of your game. It keeps you on edge. It keeps you ready to perform or to compete or whatever it is that you're doing. But, yeah, I'll never forget. Um, so I had been doing a lot of for FS1 with, with Yes's relationship with Fox. I'm able to do for the past couple of years uh, color analyst work on uh, women's games, Big East, Big 12 games, and, and do studio analyst work for them out in L.A. And so my bosses had known I had been doing that and had been doing it in the past throughout my career. So there was a situation two seasons ago by which all three of our color analysts, this is actually how it came about that I was able to do a game, um, were unavailable due to other commitments. Um, it was during the NCAA tournament time. And so to, to Ashley's point about, you know, researching and having this information, I think throughout my time covering the team, they had seen that, you know, I, I did my homework, I knew the team, I, I knew the game, and, and tried to, you know, utilize that throughout the job I was doing. But so this opportunity arose, and um, they asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, absolutely, I would love to, that would be awesome. You know, I, I felt very thankful and, and appreciative they even thought of me to do that. Um, but I, I, like, I was like, oh, my God, like I sit there throughout every game. How many NBA games and how many Brooklyn Nets games have I sat there and thought about plays and breaking things down and what I would say? But then when you're actually sitting in that seat, um, it's, a whole, it's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different role. It's a whole different feel. And, yeah, I think you're, you're terrified. You don't ever feel ready. You don't. I think the good people never feel prepared enough. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you say this all the time, you fake it to make it. I, early on in my career, I did it. You know, you got to sometimes just be in the fire and be doing it and go through it to get the full experience uh, of what it really takes. And I think that's why whether you're doing a different role or you're jumping into a different job, um, it, until you're actually going through it and doing it, uh, you can't really understand what it's going to take and it's just trying to do just good enough that, that your bosses or those that you know are able to give you those next opportunities to say okay i think that they could get better if if they're willing to commit to get better and do better if we give some more opportunities um and that's why i love this job in in this you know this this industry and, and what we do um because you still can have those feelings like that of going into your job, no matter how long you're doing it, feel like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is going to be a ride. Yeah, Sarah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I will never forget um, the feeling that I had the very first live hit I ever did, which was for a Sienna women's basketball game. And I was doing sidelines. This was when I was in Albany. And there were probably, I don't know, 20 people at home watching the broadcast, maybe 30 people on the stands. And it felt like I was about to cover the Super Bowl. Like, I I felt like my body was just going to, like, shrivel up and disintegrate the second that they came to me, almost to the point that I told the producer to not come to me because 
even though I had rehearsed what I was going to say 800 times and could say it in my sleep, I was so afraid that, like, my voice box wouldn't work as soon as they actually tossed it to me. So that was a feeling I will never forget. And I remember thinking, like, after that game, maybe this isn't the career for me because no one should feel like that. I shouldn't feel that scared and that terrified. And maybe being on camera is not what I was cut out for. And I tell people all the time that it's okay to feel that way. Um, I remember Jerry Remy, I used to work at, at Nesson, and he obviously is the, the Red Sox um, color analyst, and he used to be a player, the second baseman for the Red Sox before he became one of the most beloved announcers in Boston and in New England. And he told me one time that he used to go, when he first started doing games, he was terrified. And he would go, and every single before every single game, he would get to the booth like, four hours early and he would just sit there and he would pray for a rain out every single night the entire first season and I remember when he told me that it made me feel so much better because this is Jerry Remy the Rem Dog who's like the most comfortable uh you know feel like you're sitting on your couch having a beer as you're listening to him talk broadcaster that I've ever heard and certainly worked with um and so to hear him tell me that story kind of made me say okay that that actually it's okay to feel a little bit nervous and then obviously as Sarah alluded to you, you just you kind of learn how to channel those nerves it's like that old cliched saying of figuring out how to get those butterflies to fly in formation um, you want to feel nervous you want to have that adrenaline rush when the red light goes on that's what it's all about I think that's why a lot of people um, do it I can't I knew I was never going to play sports professionally but to be able to have to be around them and to be able to have that kind of game on moment um, is exciting and I think it's why a lot of us do it I think the biggest challenge of breaking into this business is not being overwhelmed. If you can be overwhelmed by internal and external factors, externally it's a hard industry to break into. You have to move around. You have to be willing to not make much money. You have to be willing to sacrifice all the things that, you know, as a 20-year-old are hard to sacrifice. Weddings, vacations, happy hours with your friends, all, all that stuff, relationships. And then internally, you struggle. I mean, certainly I did with the imposter syndrome, which is basically, you know, kind of a fancy way of saying that I experienced a ton of self-doubt, and I used to read these. I remember I used to read these, like, sports trivia books and study the rules of sports that I didn't know very well. I was terrified that I would be exposed for not knowing as much as I thought I should. And it took me, honestly, a little while to get over that, and it's, I kind of realized it's not about the sports trivia or knowing the nuanced rules of water polo or field hockey, but it's about being a good storyteller. It's about connecting with a coach or a player on an interview in a different way than anyone's connected with them before. It's about prepping and prepping and all that stuff we just talked about um, for the game that you're covering next. And a lot of young women in this business I've met with struggle with that confidence level and believing in yourself. And, and that internal stuff is sometimes a bigger roadblock than any of the external stuff. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying that, that nerves are real and nerves are good. And you just, as Tara said, fake until you make it. Um, if you fake confidence soon enough, you'll, you'll actually start to believe in it. Yeah, it's it's great advice. I even think about some of my early jobs, at least doing radio. And to your point, Ash, like I remember getting an almanac, like a sports almanac, going through the pages, trying to find, you know, but the reality is and you guys know this. I mean, you guys are both around the game like there's so much more that we'll never know. And in my head, I just had that aha moment. It's not about what you don't know. It's about what you do know. And I think for anyone who's aspiring to be a broadcaster, that's at least something to sort of keep in mind. There's always going to be notes and nuggets and stats and, and stories that you're just not going to be aware of for, for various reasons. But if you're able to, to navigate what you do know, that could you know certainly lead you down a, a successful path. But you guys, I also want to talk about just sort of the stereotypes because, you know, Ash, you bring up something, hey, 
you know, I was scared to death. I didn't know what, um, you know, if I was going to get exposed that are out there. I think everyone feels that way. And rightly or wrongly, you know, there is, or I would say just wrongly, there is a perception about females in sports, maybe not necessarily knowing as much as their male counterparts. And I think for you, Sarah, being able to call games and being in the booth and analyze stuff, what is, at least in your mind, the biggest stereotype about women in athletics? Well, I think, you know, I think this is obviously a, a something that we've been trying to work towards and overcome, and so many strides have been made. And I, I always say this when I'm asked about this, because I, I have a couple different feelings on this. One, like for me, I would never comply. I feel like it's easy. The people before me, the Doris Burks, the Ann Myers, Drysdales, the, I mean, there are so many people, even early, you know, Linda Cohn and Robin Roberts, you know, but the, the people that were really breaking through paved away. Um, that I feel so fortunate to be working in an age and in a generation where it's it's normal and where networks are looking to hire smart, intelligent females. And, you know, it, it's not something where I've ever felt like it's been a huge challenge or a bear. I think with this industry and in this career, as, as you know, it, it's hard. It's just hard, period, for anyone. I don't care, you know, what you look like or who you are or, you know, male, female, race, ethnic. Like, it's, it's just a very, very challenging um, career to work to get into and, and to be successful in. So I don't ever like to, to pull the female thing, but I, I do think um, when it comes to females doing a job or in sports, I just I always look at you, you got to be a little bit better. You're going to be scrutinized more um, if you mispronounce a name, if you, as Ashley was talking about, knowing the rules or understanding the game, um, if you say something wrong or, or talk about, you know, in a different language or lingo that might be used in, in hockey as opposed to basketball um, or, you know, different areas like that, I, I think it's just scrutinized more, and I think there may be a, a higher level of criticism or critique um, when it comes to being a female, because I think, you know, generally speaking, as, as I said, I do believe it's gotten, you know, so much better. Um, but there still can be a perception that males just naturally know more about sports or more interested in sports, knowledgeable than our females. Um, but I appreciate the fact that I, I do feel like we're continuing to come to a point where you look at what so many different people are doing. Um, that it's becoming more normal. Some of the kids growing up, girls growing up, boys growing up, it's normal to see a Jessica Mendoza calling a Major League Baseball game. It's normal to see a Doris Burke calling um, an NBA game. You look at what Pam Ward has done, Beth Moens in the play-by-play role, uh, Beth Moens, you know, calling those Oakland Raider games um, and doing NFL stuff. Like, there are so many women that are starting to do things. I, I think it's becoming one much more accepted in, in what I, you know, when I've been able to call games this past season and, and look forward to this upcoming season, and I told this to my bosses, and they said, I don't want it to be a thing. I don't want it to be a, you know, oh, the first female to call it, to do analysts for a play. That's great, and I appreciate that we're able to acknowledge that, but let's just do it. Like, let me do my job, and, and people may think I'm I'm decent. People may think I'm terrible, um, it, but I don't want it to be about whether it's being a female or not, or I won't look at it that way, um, because maybe some people, if I was a male, would think I was terrible anyway. So I think it's just, um, for me, it's always just been a mindset of just show up and do your job, and, and don't think about that, and don't relate that to maybe someone treated me this way or criticized me this way because of this. 
um, you know, it, it is just easier for me to just show up and do my job and, and try and take that aspect out of it. Because like I said, as, as we all know, it, it's not an easy business to excel at or to get into or get your foot in the door um, for anyone. Mike, I don't know what kind of technology you have on this podcast thing, but I feel like Sarah just reached into my brain and took all of my uh, <laughs> exact thoughts and, and said them much more eloquently than I could have said them. But, I mean, I, just to expand on that, I think that stereotypes about women in sports are changing. I, I've seen a significant shift in just the 10 years that I've been doing this. Um, the You know, she's there because she's a pretty face syndrome, still certainly exists. But I remember consistently being the only female in the press box the only female in the post-game media room, and that's just not the case at all anymore, and I love it. I, I love that there are I have as many female counterparts in this business as I do men. And the more women there are in sports, you know, that just by sheer number of it, the less of the old boys club culture can persist, which I think is, is good for everybody. And my biggest thing now moving forward is that it's not just women in on-air roles that we need. We need women in decision-making and management roles, and I think that's one of my favorite things about working at Pac-12 Network is we have those women in place. We have a female president. We have female producers. Mike, you know, our boss is a, our direct boss is a woman, and it makes a difference when it comes to lifting ourselves collectively out of that. You know, women are only here because they're pretty narrative that has been spun for so long. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think actually we are pretty fortunate just because there is a little bit more diversity, um, you know, at least in, in our shop compared to some of the other places that I've at least personally worked. I, I don't mean to make the, the, the sharp right turn and go down this dark, dark path, but um, I know you guys have seen the video. I think everyone, because it went viral, you know, Sarah Spain and Julie DeCaro um, did this like pretty high end video. And it's essentially like a mean tweet kind of thing, but it's beyond just mean. You know, when Jimmy Kimmel does it on, on his show it's it's funny this was the furthest thing from funny it was vulgar it was crude it was you know a lot of ways disgusting i don't know how else to describe it so i'm curious from your guys's take and, and ash i'll let you start here just in terms of the uh, what do I like to call it? Uh, electronic muscles. I think a lot of people have, like they feel like because they're not saying it to your face, they can tweet you something inappropriate. I, what's what's it like to be a female in this business and deal with the the social media aspect of it? Yeah, well, um, I get asked this a lot too. And I, at first I want to say to Sarah and Julie, thank you for um, taking the time and the energy and, and having the voice to be able to come out and put that that uh, video together because I think and, and I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to, to please go take a look. It's hard to watch. I remember I, I think I got to like the just about two, the two and a half minute mark and I it was like hard for me to finish it. Um, and I think that the biggest thing for me personally is that I am really thankful now because of my role at Pac-12 um, by virtue of what it is the, the vitriol and the hate that are reserved for women and men but, but for women I think especially who are columnists and paid to give their opinion, um, it's different. And I think that because, you know, our jobs at the Pac-12 are to lift up and shine a light and tell stories about all the amazing things that are going on with our student-athletes at these 12 campuses, um, I am not getting the backlash of a Chicago Cubs fan who hates me for saying that his favorite player sucks. And I think that honestly, like that's a big that's a big part of it is that people who are columnists are going to get that. Um, I mean, it is it's just like hate. I can't. There's not another better word for what it is of what these people and what some of these women hear and deal with on a daily basis. 
And my thing is, there's so much other stuff to be rightfully upset about right now in the world that why would we give one second of our energy to something that doesn't matter? And I think that the one thing that I've experienced is that it is those electronic muscles. I think that's a pretty good way to put it, Yimmer. I think that people will say something to get a reaction, and I I pick and choose my spots. I, I typically ignore a lot of it, but um, and I don't. Again, I don't get a ton of it now. But when I was in local news, and I would hear. You know, you just you just hear some stuff from people, or you get emails, or I remember you used to get phone calls, and I thought, like, what kind of people have time to call into a local news station to tell you that your hair looks like you ha- hasn't been washed in three months? Because I, I did receive a phone call like that one time from a woman. But there's stuff like that that is like a personal attack on you, and then there's an attack on what you know, and that, you know, if you're just a girl, you don't know anything. Um, but my thing is, is that a lot of times I would reply to some of these people, if it was an email or a tweet, I would reply in a very, um, I would just sort of tell them my side of it. So if they were upset about something that we didn't cover or, hey, you didn't mention that this happened in the game and this was a big deal, I would reply back. And a lot of times, you know, some of the criticism is is not completely unfounded. And I think that's a, a big difference is being able to find out and pick out people who are criticizing you and are upset legitimately and the people who are just out there to make noise and get and navigating that line is hard because it's a, much, it's a lot easier to react to people who are just being jerks um, because that's exactly what they want is a reaction. So in any event, I think, I think the biggest thing is being able to reply to the people who have a valid um, issue with something that you did or something that you said and being able to explain your side of it. And 99 times out of 100 that I have done that, I have gotten a really nice, warm response back from that person saying, thank you for taking the time to explain I now understand why you didn't include a highlight from this and this and that and this because your show got cut in half because there was a fire on the north side of the county. Like it was in local news, that stuff happened all the time. And I think it helps build a rapport and a a relationship with some of the viewers. And again, it's it's finding that fine line between the people who are just out there to make noise and get your attention and the people who actually listen and care and have feedback that, that maybe sometimes you should listen to. That's my take on it. I second every single thing that Ashley said, so I'll I'll be briefer because I feel like that's spot on of of exactly the the take I would have on it. Um, But you using the words vitriol and hate, like that, that to me, which is is out there and it's real. Um, And when you look at what Sarah and Julie had shown, like to me that's just societal issues that are so much deeper than anything I I could even begin to wrap my head around with someone um, in terms of how they would treat or approach someone or have comments to say to someone um, in talking about the world of sports. Uh, So to me that's, it it, it goes back to Ashley talking about internal things, you know, there's external things you need to take on, and that's internally. continuing each day taking on this job and reminding yourself of, of who you are, what you stand for, who you are as a person, and not letting those lines or letting any of those comments. Um, and it's not easy to do, but cross over into that and into kind of uh, tangential to that. I, I think just in talking about that, that I, it goes with um, what we do our jobs, uh, understanding that we get a lot of suggestions, pressure, you know, thoughts from so many different people um, in, you know, putting out a production is not just us, of course. There's so many people behind the scenes um, who we're so thankful for 
that help out so much. And I think, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, that I feel like should should be, um, you know, just all that, that gratefulness for all the people that help us put on a show um, should always be shown. But at the end of the day, and, and again, when I talk to young kids trying to do this, if you are the on-air person, if, if, you know, Ashley's the one on the TV or me, when things are coming out of your mouth or when you're tweeting or when you're saying anything, um, that's you. That's your face. So if your producer or your boss is, hey, maybe you should go take this route or ask this or do, I always, at the end of the day, make sure whatever you say, whatever you do, um, you're good with. Make sure whatever comes out of your mouth on the air, on you know Twitter, or whatever it may be, um, that is coming from you, and it's something you're okay to sit with. So then, if there are all those people saying anything or coming back at you about stuff, I think it's just knowing that that whatever you continue to do on a daily basis is something that you can be okay with. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you're good with the work you do, with what you say, with the opinions you have. Um, whatever that may be in, in terms of your work for the day, then that's all that really matters. And for as disappointing as it is that humanity um, and, and many people in it find, you know, the need to, to say such horrible, awful things, um, you know, it's something that is kind of like that's it's probably not about you at the end of the day. It's, it's about something that, that they're dealing with. Yeah, certainly great insight from both of you guys. Um... I know we're running a little short on time, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this because both of your experiences are are so incredible. You guys get to interact and have interacted with so many great athletes and coaches. Um, you know, I mean, you, in a lot of ways, the three of us, we have dream jobs for a lot of people. And I know that there's got to be, I mean, even Sarah, when we were down uh, doing that robot competition, I found myself asking you about a lot of guys that, that I grew up that were still playing for the Nets or at least were around the sport. And you kind of gave me some stories. And Ash, I've heard a ton of yours as well. So the go-to athletes meeting or, or interaction that you've had with with someone in this business what would you what would you point to and, and sarah i'll let you start oh that's tough i feel like i have a million ashley do you know your answer to this yet you know i'm so glad you started with sarah <laughs> i think you know what and i think and ashley can attest to that you you end up covering so many teams and so many sports and you know, all, you're not just, you know, young pups in this anymore. I feel like now that I, I've been doing this for about eight, nine years, you know, it, it adds up in all the teams that you cover. And um, I have to say that it, my favorite part of our jobs, um, among all the other things and all that it brings and challenges, you know, for each of us individually and collectively working as a team, um, but I, I tell people I get an opportunity each and every day to be around groups of, of people or athletes, coaches that are so goal-oriented and passionate and just pouring out their hearts towards achieving goals and dreams um, on a daily basis that it's so inspiring to see what it is that they bring to the table um, all the time. I, I just think it's, it's so cool, uh, and I'm so thankful to be around that. But I, there, there's a million teams and people that, that I really think are special, but I was fortunate enough to cover the Chicago Blackhawks um, for a handful of years when I was working in Chicago. And it, when they, now, now they're on their runs of, uh, not this season, of course, but Stanley Cup, but um, in 2010. And it was the young core of guys, and I don't know how many hockey fans uh, are, are listening to this, but the Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, 
Patrick Sharp, this whole group of of kids that uh, were drafted by the team and coming up and kind of all melding together. And it was one of the most special experiences that that I have ever seen. Um, And namely, I'll point to Jonathan Taves. He was a captain. He was, I'm trying to think if he was even at that time, maybe 19, 20. 21, and it was just um, he, he really just was separated himself from all other athletes that I've seen in terms of how he treated each and every person top to bottom from his teammates, um, from the media, from people that were working within the United Center, um, every kid that walked up to him that stopped him, and he was just truly one of the most special human beings Um 24-7 it seemed and he was just the leadership that he showed both on the ice but also just the, the human being that he was off the ice was something that um, when people ask well what are these guys like and are they really as nice as they seem and is, are they really as um, and it was something that I was like they, they are even nicer and better and more glowing of, of human beings than you can imagine um, so for me that's I always think about him and that group and just um, what they had created within that organization um, in terms of growing and improving and reaching of course the, the pinnacle and their goal of, of finally winning a Stanley Cup but just not what they did on the ice, but just the people that they were off. And um, that, to me, was was just one of the most special things that I'll always treasure and I'll always think about um, who they were as people, not just athletes. And, Sarah, obviously I didn't know you then, but I, I love hearing you tell that story because I was in India at the time and I actually went to, I think it was um, the conference semifinals when Blackhawks played the Canucks. And I got to go. It was the first game of playoff game I'd ever been to. And it was, I will tell people who are not hockey fans, and I say this all the time, if you're not a hockey fan, that's just because you haven't been to a hockey game yet. <laughs> you haven't been to a meaningful it's hockey game yet. Go to a playoff Can I tell game. one more quick story <laughs> yeah. on that? And this is Please. my favorite memory. Sorry, Yammer, if we're taking up all your time. Oh, go for it. No, 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 it's your show. At <laughs> that point, there's, there's a Michael Jordan statue outside the United Center. Um, and so during that playoff run, and, and everyone was, was getting into it and getting behind the Blackhawks, and it was, it was now that's the way Chicago is because um, they've been doing it for so many years with this group, but it was the start of it. And so during that playoff run, they put a Jonathan Taves, shirt, Taves uh, jersey, a sweater, on the Michael Jordan statue. And so there was, like, so many different opinions and discussion and dialogue <laughs> fights of, like, was that almost sacrilegious to put a hockey, you know, a hockey jersey of a player who was young and who hadn't won anything on the Michael Jordan statue. Um, and so there was just all this rumblings going on in the city. And I can't remember, it's, it might have been, I can't remember if it was the, the Western Conference Finals or if it was during the Stanley Cup Final. Um, but it was a home game, and, and that was all happening. And I should look back to, so I could actually retell the story correctly. But it was during uh, the game, and it was during, you know, a quick intermission or timeout or something. And they show on the jumbotron, and he walks out of a suite. Michael Jordan wearing at the game wearing a Jonathan Taves jersey, <laughs> and the United Center erupted. And it was just one of the most just special moments I had ever been able to actually witness, um, particularly because Michael Jordan was the player group watching. But it, to me, it was just the synergy of, of the city and of teams and of players and of the respect um, that goes on between athletes. Uh, I just think it's incredible. 
that is an that is an awesome story. story. I would say, and having had like a moment to reflect real quick about while Sarah was talking, I think it is a really hard question to say what's the, your go-to memory of a of a player you've been around or a story. And and I think the the best part about our jobs is being able to see who, and sometimes the better, and sometimes for worse, who these players and coaches are away from when the red light, <clears throat> excuse me, on the camera is on. And I I always tell people. Um, you know David Shaw. There's I'm I am uh, an unabashed fan of his and of what he's done at Stanford, and being able to have been around him. Um, there's so many small things that I've seen him do when he's not on camera that tell you exactly who he is. Um, and it's it's little stuff. It's like after they won the Rose or sorry after they won the Pac-12 championship um, at Arizona State. I guess that was two years ago, three years ago. He came um, into our uh, kind of our press conference room, we were sort of off to the side, and he introduced himself to every single person in that room, and it was just our small little crew, so it was the audio guy and the camera guy and, and our producer and me, and he went around and shook everyone's hand, said hello, met them, repeated their name, and had these this like great conversation with us that he was genuinely interested. It, here was this moment that was all about him and his team, and they're going to the Rose Bowl, and isn't that great? And it's just David Shaw is one of those guys who I've seen time and time again um, he's just a, a, in some ways a cut above. And so I think that's the best part of this job is being able to see players and coaches and find out who they are kind of away from the spotlight. And I will say that my biggest, I guess, career highlight, if people always ask me kind of what's your biggest career highlight, so I guess that's the way I'll answer this question, Yammer, if that's okay, yeah. was covering Brad Stevens and the Butler Bulldogs in their back-to-back um, NCAA title runs. They, those teams, and it's for the same reason that Sarah said it was so special to watch the Blackhawks that year, These, this group of players, I'm convinced that I will never be around a team that had um, as much, I don't want to say heart and soul, because obviously there are a lot of teams that have a lot of heart and soul, but they just had this bulldog mentality, this Butler bulldog mentality. They were the underdogs, and the fact that they were able to pull off the wins that they did in the tournament for two straight years, um, and these kids were the, some of the nicest, most genuine. They loved each other, and they did. It was everything that was good about college sports. And it was sort of like this lightning in a bottle that I, I, somehow my time lined up with them, and I was able to travel with them for both their NCAA tournament runs. Um, and, and Brad Stevens, I couldn't be a bigger fan of him either. I, I compare him and, and Shaw to each other a fair amount of the time, actually, because I think they, they remind me a lot of each other. But I think that being able to watch a group of players who um, came together and overcame, there was no superstar. I mean, they had Gordon Hayward, sure, the first year, and, and Sheldon Mack and Ron Nord, but they had these guys who just truly believed in each other, and as cheesy and as cliched as that sounded, that was what got them to the brink. And it was, I don't think I've ever been more devastated than when they lost to UConn in the championship game in 2011, but uh, to see that journey and to see them do and pull off what what no one thought they could, let alone two years in a row, um, was by far the most special thing that I've been a part of in my career. Yeah, guys, really just awesome moments. And it's, it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a nice reminder to remember just how cool the job really is. Um, I, look, guys, I know I told you, hey, think about a half hour or so. I apologize that we've gone long. You guys were awesome, though. Uh, I can't thank you guys both for, for coming on because I think it's really important. And Ash, you know this. Uh, you know, we talk to so many students, and a lot of times it's a female student that has, you know, a question, and I just can't answer it because – your your guys' experiences are so different. I know everyone's is, but just 
in the industry from the female perspective, what it's like to get into this business and you guys sort of sharing some of those moments. Uh, I can't thank you both for, for coming on and sort of doing this roundtable sort of discussion with me. So thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having us. I, that's why I kept subscribing and liking and doing all your things. I, would hope, I was hoping you eventually asked me to come on. So. <laughs> it was there. Good job. Some work out there, too. No, absolutely. Well, thank you again, guys. We're super grateful for Ashley and Sarah to give us a few minutes to share not only their paths, but but really be honest about some of the challenges that they have faced in their careers as they uh, really launch themselves into some prime positions in the broadcasting uh, industry, certainly in front of that public eye when it comes to, to basketball in Sarah's case and obviously in college athletics now for, for Ashley. All right, a lot still to get to over the next few weeks and always appreciate the feedback. Remember, if you're, you're listening to the podcast, don't be afraid to hit that subscribe button, rate us, review us on iTunes. Of course, you can find us on Stitcher, not to mention Blog Talk Radio. Just to set up the stage for you for the next couple weeks here, Joe Sidall, who is the uh, color analyst for the Toronto Blue Jays, is going to be joining us next week on the show. An incredible story that he was able to share. I did the interview with him a little while ago. I've made reference to this. It is not often. I mean, I've probably have done in my career hundreds, if not thousands of interviews on the TV side and the radio side, and it is rare. In fact, it's the only time I can think of where I got chills listening to Joe tell his story. So that interview is coming up on the next edition of the Give Me a Sense podcast, not to mention uh, some Olympians around the corner of the Olympic Games in Rio will be kicking up. Jeremy Bloom, not to mention Samantha Peshek, they will be joining us. Also want to throw this out there. Uh, He is, uh, I'm lucky enough to call him a friend uh, and a colleague, but Curtis Conway, who is uh, an NFL wide receiver, an All-American at USC, and an analyst for us at the Pac-12 Networks. Uh, One thing people might not be aware of, but his wife is Layla Ali, and certainly this has been a a tough time for, you know, the athletic world uh, with Muhammad Ali passing away a couple weeks ago. But Curtis is going to be sharing his story on some of his memories with uh, with the champ. And believe me, it's something that when I thought about the show, I wanted to do uh, immediately because he always just lights up when he talked about Muhammad Ali. So really, really excited to get him on the show. Once again, continue to rate us and download us. Uh, obviously, spread the word. Let your friends know about this podcast. The Give Me a Sense podcast, once again, available on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening and downloading.